0: All right, last time we were together, we talked about a little teeny member of our body, likened to the bit on a horse or uh, the rudder of a ship. Small, but very powerful. It can be very destructive. Uh, We saw that uh, the Bible tells us your, your tongue should be controlled, but how is that possible? Well, a key to right talk is right thought right thought and this next passage we're going to look at remember chapter divisions are not inspired verses are not inspired they are helpful but not inspired and so we we see as we're carrying on now that uh, yes your tongue needs to be controlled and is, isn't it interesting that God put that little member the tongue put it in a cage surrounded by a mouth and teeth well most of us have those things we have lips but yet that tongue still escapes it can do damage and so james says it's not intelligence that keeps the lock on the cage james shows us it's wisdom the lock is wisdom and so we need true wisdom from heaven not the opposite (laughs) and so james is going to paint a portrait you didn't know he was a painter did you well, he's not a painter. James is not a painter, half-brother of Jesus. But he is nevertheless going to paint a portrait for us here that is really helpful. And it's a contrasting portrait. True wisdom versus false wisdom. But notice the very first verse, verse 13. Look what he does. He asks a question here. In James 3, verse 13, he says, Who is wise and understanding among you? Obviously, he's writing to the church. He's writing to true Christians, true believers. And there's two words there that some people think are synonyms, but they're not actually synonyms. In reality, the words wise and understanding are a little different. So let me, let me explain this before we read the text. See, wise was used by Greeks to talk about speculative knowledge, to talk about theory and philosophy. Now, for the Jews, the word wise had a deeper meaning. It meant a careful application of knowledge to personal living. It it, it affected your life, in other words. And so the word understanding here carries this idea of specialized knowledge. For example, it's the sort of thing that a highly skilled tradesman or professional would use in their life. That's understanding. And so my friend, don't think you're, uh, well, let me ask you, do you think you're wise in understanding? Well, if you do, we're going to have a test. (laughs) I'm not going to grade you, God's going to grade you today, and this test is going to reveal the quality of your wisdom. Is your wisdom true, or is it false? Which is it? Which portrait do you fit in here? So picture yourself coming into this art gallery and we're going to look at two different contrasting portraits. So look what James does here. James 3, verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you. By his good conduct let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial. And sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. That's our text for today. Let me just highlight a command before I give you the proposition. Because you'll see in a proposition, they're uh, coming from a command here. Notice the command says right there in verse 13 by his good conduct, let him show. The command is show. Let him show. That's an imperative in the Greek. God wants you to show something. What is that? Well, here's the proposition. God wants you to show true wisdom. God wants you to show true wisdom. Remember, James has been showing us all along here what does a mature Christian look like and think like and act like. Well, mature Christians manifest the wisdom of God they manifest the wisdom of God. Now, how should wisdom be seen? Because you're commanded to show true wisdom. So how is it seen? Well, three ways in the text. Three ways that true wisdom is shown. Number one, we must show wisdom by our good conduct. It's by our good conduct, as verse 13 says. And good conduct there just is referring to your behavior. It's... It's referring to your lifestyle, in fact. Your lifestyle. In other words, wisdom is demonstrated by godly living. It's not just what you say. It's not just what you think. But what you think and what you believe needs to be shown and manifested in your lifestyle. So, my friend, how are you doing? How are you doing? Are you showing through your good conduct, that you have true wisdom. It should be shown through your good conduct. And it also, number two, should be shown through your good works. These are kind of similar concepts here, but not quite. The word works there in verse 13 is referring to whatever activity you're involved in. So you might say one is more of who you are. The other one is the outworking of who you are on the inside. Right? What you do is coming from who you really are. In other words, uh, you, you, you are the person that is worked out. Does that make sense? You can't deny that. So, you, you, you have to show true wisdom by your good works. You will. How you doing? It's challenging text, I know. But there's a third way to show wisdom. It's by our meekness. That's interesting. Because God says, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. Isn't that interesting? Of all the words that God could have put there, instead of meekness, uh, there's a lot of things he could have put there, but he chose to put meekness. Interesting choice. Because meekness is a God-honored character traits, certainly something Jesus uh, portrayed during his life. It's something we see that is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. Read Galatians 5, right, uh, amongst the, the fruit there, love, joy, peace, and eventually you get to meekness. Meekness is something that, it's not bitter, it's not mean, it's not self-seeking, it's not self-promoting, it's not arrogant, it's not vengeful. In fact, meekness is power under control. power under control. The master example of that would be Jesus Christ. The creator of the universe had complete power, but under control. <laughs> we could be thankful for that. In fact, the word "meekness" to, to illustrate, it was actually used of wild horses. That would be tamed. They would be broken and made useful to an owner. Because a wild horse out of control is not useful. It can be deadly and destructive. But a tamed horse with all of that power could be used for all wonderful things. And so that was the, that same word of taming a wild horse is used here in meekness. Have you been tamed? Has your tongue been tamed? to be made useful? Well, it should be. So in the the portrait of true wisdom versus false wisdom, we'll we'll look at the portrait here of false wisdom to start with. What is false wisdom? And then I'm going to ask you a few questions that need to be answered from the text today. So there's something that motivates false, false wisdom. So to understand what false wisdom is, you need to understand What's behind it? What's motivating false wisdom? Well, if you look at verse 14, we see that the first sinful motive behind false wisdom is bitter jealousy. Bitter jealousy. Not just jealousy, but an adjective describing it to to help you understand it is bitter. See, bitter jealousy here is the worst sort of jealousy. That's the idea of the word bitter. In other words, what it means, friends, is it's harsh. It's sharp. It's cutting. It's something that's destructive. Well, that doesn't sound like wisdom, does it? That's why it's called false wisdom. And so the idea there, friends, is that, in other words, it has no concern for the feelings or the welfare of those who are its object. No concern for others. Very self-focused. What else motivates false wisdom? Number two... A second sinful motive here is selfish ambition. Selfish ambition's motivating. This is notice. It's not just ambition. God again adds an adjective here, saying it's selfish. It is an extreme selfishness. Selfish ambition, by the way, was was used of personal gratification. Uh, it, it's self-fulfillment at any cost, it, and so. This has no room again, no room for other people. It's that self-elevation that is rampant in our world today. You see it in the corporate ladder climbing, where we'll just squash and step on people and do whatever means I can to climb the corporate ladder. It's what Paul, the apostle Paul, describes in Timothy, right? It's in this, in the latter days, men will be lovers of self rather than lovers of God. That's that's what you see here in this selfish ambition. And by the way, notice at the end of verse 14, notice what it says. It's selfish ambition in your hearts. Do not boast and be false to the truth. <laughs> so a person whose motives here are based on the this false world's wisdom is inevitably then going to boast and be false to the truth. Therefore, James is saying that if a person claims to belong to God, if you claim to be a Christian, and you have the the wisdom, and you're claiming to have wisdom of God, but your life is motivated by those things right there, by the selfish ambition and that bitter jealousy, then you're lying. You're deceived, It may maybe. You're certainly lying about the truth. In other words, the Holy Spirit is saying, this person can't even be a Christian. You're not even saved. You're living a lie. Your, your life is showing who you really are. So that's the motivation for false wisdom. And let's look at some of the characteristics. What are the characteristics of false wisdom in verse 15? In fact, verse 15 is going to give you the three great enemies of every Christian. You're going to see the world. This this cosmos that we uh, uh, the system of beliefs and philosophies and values we live in. You're going to see indwelling sin, and you're going to see the devil. Those are the three enemies you have, and they're all mentioned in one way or another here. So we we see the first characteristic of false wisdom is it's earthly, earthly. That's not talking about dirt, not talking about topsoil or something like that. So what does it mean? Well, earthly just means it's limited to the present material world that we live in, which includes time and space. It's restricted to things that uh, we can theorize about and discover and accomplish by ourselves. And the idea here is it leaves God out. Uh, it's, it's everything, you know, with no God. No, no place for God in it. It's a closed system without God. That's what it means to be earthly. That's, that's characterizing false wisdom. Life without God. (laughs) Read Ecclesiastes. That's, That's vanity. That's emptiness. Worthlessness. Number two, false wisdom is unspiritual. God says it's unspiritual. Interesting choice of words. In other words, it's something that's just natural, sensual. It's fleshly. Something relating only to your fallen, unredeemed part of you. Something wholly corrupted by the fall that happened in Genesis 3. See, in Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve sinned, I mean, it it, it brought everything down. The whole, the whole universe now is corrupted as a result of man's sin. And so, false wisdom is unspiritual. It's something now natural, sensual, fleshly. But then number three, we see false wisdom is demonic. Ooh, that's interesting. The idea is there that Satan and his demons are the source of false wisdom. Well, you don't want to be a part of that, do you? Nobody in the right mind would say, I don't want to be a part of that. I don't want to be characterized by that. Well, this is something characterized as demonic. And the reason for that is because Satan is the one who works through his demons, which, by the way, are fallen angels. God never created demons. He made angels, and then they... The Bible says a third of the angels fell with Lucifer when he sinned. So God cast them out of heaven. And so false wisdom is demonic. It's unspiritual. It's sensual. It's worldly, earthly. That's the characterization of this false wisdom that God gives to us here. And then it also has results mentioned. What are the results of false wisdom? Well, that's verse 16. Verse 16, and the first result we see here is, notice verse 16, it says, For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder. God tells you disorder comes in the wake as a result of false wisdom. Disorder, by the way, just has the basic meaning of something that's instable. It's instable. It's used as a state of confusion. It's something that is creating a disturbance, even rebellion or anarchy in life. Certainly can't be trusted. But there's a second result that God mentions there. False wisdom results in vile practices. Vile practices. And so the idea is that absolutely nothing of any ultimate good results from human wisdom. This false wisdom, nothing of any ultimate good can result from that. So it's not a path you want to follow. It's not something you want to have in your life. And to illustrate this, I, I was reading a, a horrible tragedy. It happened as a result of human wisdom. Here, here's here's where human wisdom can lead. Listen to this story. See back way back in eighteen forty five. Royal Navy Admiral Sir John Franklin and poor 138 men who were chosen. They left England, and they were trying to find the Northwest Passage. You heard the story? It's tragic. See, what happened is they sailed in two ships, uh, each having three masts on the ship, and each ship was also equipped with a steam engine. They had 12 days' supply of coal, so that they could uh, steam power if they needed, if there was no wind. But instead of loading extra coal, each ship made room for a 1,200-volume library. They had an organ. They had fine china. They had goblets. And they had sterling flatware. You can already see where this is going, can't you? Uh, anyway, author in. Dillard had this to say about this expedition. She said, quote, The technology of of the Franklin Expedition was adapted only to the conditions in the Royal Navy Officers Club in England. End quote. So the only clothing which these proud Englishmen took on the expedition were the uniforms and coats of Her Majesty's Navy. The ship sailed off amidst imperial pomp and glory. A British whaler was the last European to see them alive. Search parties funded by Lady Franklin began to piece together a tragic history. The remains of 35 men were found at a place now named Starvation Cove. Very appropriate. Another 35 bodies were found in a tent at Terror Bay. Simpson Strait had yielded an eerie sight, three wooden masts of a ship sticking through the ice. For the next 20 years, search parties recovered skeletons from the frozen waste. Twelve years later, it was learned that Admiral Franklin had died aboard ship. The remaining officers and crews had decided to walk for help. The Franklin expedition was a monumental failure by all estimations, it was foolishly conceived, planned, equipped, and carried out. The expedition itself accomplished absolutely nothing, yet it was the turning point in Arctic exploration. The mystery attracted so much attention in Europe and in the United States that at least 30 ships <laughs> made uh, journeys in search of the answer. In doing so, they at least something good came out of this, they ended up mapping out Uh, The Arctic for the first time. They discovered the Northwest Passage. They developed technology uh, that was suitable to Arctic conditions. (laughs) And one day, a Norwegian by the name of Amundsen would use those lessons learned to plant the Norwegian flag at the South Pole. Sadly, beat a New Zealander. Quite sad if you know that story. But anyway, Helpful lessons learned. But friends, one of the things we can learn from this very tragic story is that the shipwreck of worldly wisdom ought to motivate us to seek wisdom from God, and in the process, then we can wisely navigate through life. See, false wisdom can be destructive and deadly and demonic, as we've learned. But let's look at some true wisdom, because... It's, it's opposite. This is a very different portrait. So look at the, the, the characteristics, the motivation, and the results of true wisdom. First of all, we're going to see wisdom from above, wisdom that's heavenly. And that's, that's, in other words, what it's referring to here is God's own divine wisdom, which, of course, is graciously bestowed on all who trust in Jesus Christ. But it, too, has some motivation we need to understand. Look at verse 17. Here's the motivation, because it says, but the wisdom from above is first pure. There you go, friends. There's the motivation. It's pure. In other words, purity here is the motivation for true wisdom. You say, "How, how do you say why? Why do you say that? Well, the word pure carries the idea of being free from contamination. That word pure is is something that's not defiled. It was actually used of ancient Greeks. So, Because you, your New Testament is written in Greek, so understand ancient Greek. Here's how they used it. They would they used it uh, to talk about the cleansing ceremony by where a, uh, a worshiper was made pure. A worshiper was made worthy enough to approach the presence of the gods. Of course, we don't believe in gods. We believe in the one true God. But nevertheless, the idea still stands that you, you, you can be made pure. The, this idea of undefilement, and not being contaminated, is, is the idea here. So, in other words, we're talking about spiritual integrity, moral sincerity. That's the motivation behind true wisdom. And by the way, you say, well, why is the word pure here not a characteristic? I was asking that myself. Why is it not a characteristic? We'll look at those in a moment here. But why is it not a characteristic? Because notice the connecting adverb in your Bible. The connecting adverb, then, is the basis for taking the word pure here to be a motive as opposed to a characteristic. Uh, Okay? As you look at in verse 17, it says, But the wisdom from above is first pure then you see all these characteristics coming out of the motive. So may God give us the right motive, which is spiritual integrity and moral sincerity, so that we can evidence these characteristics of true wisdom. Well, what are the characteristics of true wisdom, you want to know? Well, here they are. In the text of God's Word, it says, first of all, that true wisdom is peaceable, peaceable. In other words, a wise person is one who does not perpetrate conflict by being selfish. <laughs> See, what, what does a selfish person do? If you're selfish, what are you focused on? Your, your worship is about you. It's all about you, baby, right? <laughs> That's what a selfish person does. But someone who is truly wise and has obtained wisdom from God is not self-focused. And as a result, the peace of God in your heart is then going to flow out of you to everyone around you. So a wise person's not perpetrating conflict, but is peaceable. Number two, true wisdom is gentle. Uh, Again, we can look to our Lord Jesus Christ for great examples for all of this. You want to know what true wisdom looks like? Look to Jesus. But a gentle person, think about it. What is a gentle person like? Again, look to Galatians 5, fruit of the Spirit. A person filled, controlled by the Holy Spirit is gentle. In order for that to happen, uh, we, we learn in Scripture, a gentle person is humbly patient. Humbly patient. If you're proud, you're, you're not interested in being patient with You're not interested in being humble. But you have to be humbly patient in order for the gentleness to flow through you. And and this kind of a person is then able to submit to the dishonor and the abuse that's going to come your way. Yeah, you're going to receive abuse. You're going to be ridiculed, slandered, gossiped, persecuted. You're going to have trials coming your way but a gentle person can sail through those can make it through because you're submitting to the lord ultimately to the lordship of Jesus Christ in your life you're going to be able to deal with that mistreatment and persecution because you know there's one who's in control of that a gentle person understands the characteristic of true wisdom is being gentle but number three true wisdom is also open to reason you're open to reason the idea there by the friends th- th- this means you are teachable are you are you teachable Ooh. the older I get the more I see the importance of this and the more I'm irritated at my younger self I hope that's a good thing. But how often we are so arrogant and unteachable and obnoxious. But true wisdom shows, well, we need to be teachable because we don't know everything. There's so much we need to learn. Now, this word was used of a of a man who was willingly submitted to military discipline. Military discipline. Yeah, that can be hard. That can be hard. God disciplines His children, the Bible says in Hebrews, because God loves you, by the way. That's why He disciplines you. But are you willingly submitted to that? See, someone who's open to reason can endure that. You say, how? Because they understand God is love. God's working His best in you. That's if, if you're open to reason, you can endure. You understand that a characteristic of true wisdom is that you're then teachable, you're able to endure that discipline. God knows what's best for you. But number four, true wisdom is full of mercy. Are you full of mercy? See, this is the person that's like the good Samaritan that Jesus taught about. You remember the good Samaritan? That person was, had great concern compassion for anybody he encounters, anybody that's suffering, anybody who's in need of support or assistance, even if that person is not like them. See, Samaritans and Jews didn't like each other. And so Jesus' story was a slap in the face, particularly for the religious leaders of Israel. Uh, This person has special concern for his fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. And that makes him full of mercy. Are you full of mercy? You need to be. If you are, then you're a good portrait of true wisdom. Number five, true wisdom is also full of good fruits. Not just one, but multiple fruits. And so this, uh, so notice it's, you know, this one's hard to describe, but it's referring to every sort of good work or deed. Well, God has a lot to explain in the Bible. So not just the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5, but you can see the opposite of the, coming from the works of the flesh, also in Galatians 5. Those will be the things you put off. fruit of the Spirit be be the, the good that should be flowing from you. But are you full of good fruits? Are you full of it? See, someone who has true wisdom is full. Unlike my blueberry plants this year. (laughs) God blessed us with 50 blueberry plants. Very thankful for them. I expected a greater crop this year. But uh, as I learned on my blueberry tour on on the Monovale Orchard there, uh, even they had something called rust. And so rust, not something happens to your car, but... It can even happen to blueberries, where all the leaves get this thing that looks like rust and affects the whole plant. And as a result, the plant wasn't as full as I was hoping this year. I was hoping to be a greater blessing to all of you this year and be able to invite all of you out to pick some blueberries. But No, God chose to give the blueberries rust. So the plants weren't as full as they could have been. And so sometimes things come into our lives that affect us, just like rust on a blueberry plant. You want to be full, friends? You need God's true wisdom. Don't allow things to come in and and rust you out and take care of those good works and deeds. But number six, true wisdom is impartial, the Bible says. And that just means not to be parted or divided. You don't want to be parted and divided. You don't want to be inconsistent. The opposite of that is God wants you to be consistent. Someone who who has true wisdom is consistently working out all of the good fruits and the, the mercy and the reason and all this other stuff. May God make you consistent. And then number seven, the last characteristic is here is true wisdom is sincere. Are you sincere? Well, if you if you're not sure about that, the opposite of of sincere is hypocrisy. And by the way, that that word there, uh, hypocrisy, was used of of Greek plays when Greeks who wanted to earn more money from their plays, instead of hiring lots of more people in their play, they would just wear masks. You ever seen those those funny looking white masks? that sometimes people would wear, you know, frown face, smiley face, scared face, surprise face, all kinds of faces, fear face. You know, they put these white masks on. So one guy, theoretically, could do an entire play by wearing different kinds of white masks. And so this, this idea of sincerity actually came out of the Greek plays. And that guy became rich because he did the whole play by himself. Well, maybe not rich, but he earned more money, okay? Are you sincere, or are you wearing a mask? Right? I mean, the guy could actually be happy and be wearing a frowny face. You know, he on the inside, he's different from what's showing on the outside. That's the idea of sincerity, is what's on your inside actually showing on the outside. They should match, right? If not, then you're not sincere. So God says true wisdom is something that is sincere. It, it doesn't have hypocrisy. Your your whole life matches up with, with what you say you really are. If, if not, then you're not sincere. So may your walk match your talk. Well, what comes out of this? Well, these are great characteristics, but did you know there's wonderful results that come from true wisdom? Let's think about the results that God's, that God mentions here comes from true wisdom. In other words, there's a harvest. A harvest comes from true wisdom. Well, here's what one commentator is. He's commenting on verse 18 because notice verse 18 mentions this harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. You will reap what you sow. It's a biblical principle from Galatians. But one commentator said this, quote, there is a causal relationship between godly wisdom, genuine righteousness, and peace. Godly wisdom produces a continuing cycle of righteousness, which is planted and harvested in a peaceful, harmonious relationship between God and His faithful people, and between those people themselves. In other words, friends, your life is sowing something. It's sowing something but what kind of a harvest are you going to get from your sowing? In other words, you're putting seeds in the ground. Everything you're doing, saying, thinking, right? Your your life is going to produce a harvest, but what kind of harvest is it going to be? See, the person who professes to be a Christian must prove it by your works. James James has been saying that for a while, hasn't he? See, a mature Christian shows his faith by his works. Your daily life is professing something. It's showing something. And so, if we are true believers, we're going to possess God's wisdom. And then that wisdom is going to manifest itself in righteous, peaceful living. You remember what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount? By fruits, you're going to show something, right? If the tree's alive, or is it dead? Is it growing? Or not. How do you know? How do you know a tree's alive? By their fruits. Jesus told us to be fruit inspectors. So the Christian life, friend, is a life of sowing and reaping. And for that matter, every life is a life of sowing and reaping. And we reap, by the way, what we sow. Right? You put a maize seed in the ground you expect to get maize, don't you? (laughs) And by the way, when you put a maize seed in the ground, you expect to get more than what you put in the ground, don't you? That's, That's the biblical principle, right? Hopefully you get at least two corn cobs, at least, you hope, when you put that in the ground. And that's what happens in your life. So the Christian who obeys God's wisdom is sowing righteousness, hopefully not sin, if you sow peace, not war, you're going to reap peace. And so the life we live then enables the Lord to bring righteousness and peace and then into the lives of others. Your life has an effect on others. So to achieve righteousness, the idea there, by the way, is, is uh, verse 18 talks about this harvest of righteousness. The idea is there is God's talking about this spiritual maturity. This practical holiness, which is the theme of the book of James, to achieve that, a believer has to learn. Then, one of the things you need to learn is you have to speak carefully, speak wisely, speak lovingly. See, a wise, wise speech though is coming from wise spirit, right? Where is it coming from? Well, Jesus said it's out of the abundance of your heart your mouth speaks. So a controlled tongue is possible only with culture thought. A mouth filled with praise results from a mind that's filled with God's purity. Let's just think about the contrasting portraits that James has presented before us here. So just picture yourself walking into this art gallery that James is portraying here. I don't know if you've ever done this. It's, a, it's, it's very interesting to walk into an art gallery, just kind of sit down and meditate and contemplate upon what's in there. So just picture yourself doing this, okay? I've given you a picture of a few people doing this, all right? Maybe this will help you. Come into the art gallery of James. Imagine yourself sitting in the center of this art gallery. The brightly lit room appears... Empty, except for two paintings. James has painted two paintings for you. Two contrasting portraits on opposite walls facing each other. On one wall hangs the portrait of an arrogant, worldly, devilish fellow featured on a very dark backdrop that should be stirring some emotions of anger and envy and jealousy. A scraggly beard veils his features on his face. A large hat casts a shadow over his very shifty eyes. He leaves chaos and destruction in in his wake as he advances unflinchingly toward the pursuit of his goals. What's his goals? He's driven by jealousy and ambition. And the caption beneath that portrait reads this, friends. The unwise painted by self. That's the one portrait that James has painted for you. Now, as you turn in your chair and start to gaze at the other wall in the art gallery, here's what you're going to see. You have a face on that other wall that couldn't be more different from the one you just saw. This man sports a gentle demeanor. His posture is relaxed. His expression is peaceful. His eyes feel inviting, his hands appear ready for service. Behind him, people follow, eager to hear his words and mimic his actions. Children celebrate his arrival, delighted to see what gifts he's bringing them. Clearly, he's respected. He shows no signs of pride, and his path is just filled with joy, peace, and prosperity. Below his portrait, the caption says, The Wise, painted by the Spirit of God. There's your two contrasting portraits in this art gallery. That's it. That's it, just the two. And so in light of those two contrasting portraits or pictures, friends, I ask you, which one is aligned with you the best? Which one are you? Because you realize the portrait is you. God is describing you. He's giving you the portrait of true wisdom versus false wisdom. So here's some questions for you to ponder. Is your life characterized by gentleness and humility? Do people know you as a person of mercy, authenticity, and peace? Do you act the same at home as you do when you come to church? Is your public persona different from home or work? Do you build others up and rejoice at their successes? Do you place the needs and in the interests of other people ahead of your own? Are you someone who leaves harmony and joy in your wake? And as you seriously think through those questions, some of those are just coming right from the text here, what you need to do, friends, is avoid answering those questions the way you wish they could be answered. Don't answer them how you wish they could be answered them, but actually defend your answer with actual evidence. Think through some examples in your mind. Hmm, which portrait am I? And after you have identified with either the portrait of the wise or the unwise, then think through your response. How should I respond? See, God wants a response from you. James already said that way back in chapter 1. Remember what James said? Be a doer of the Word, not a hearer only. It's not good to hear God's truth from His Word and do nothing with it. You've just condemned yourself, if if that's you. You need to do something. So for the wise, respond to God with thanksgiving, praising Him for how He's molding you. But if you're not wise, by your own making, but by the inner working of the Holy Spirit, you you can be wise. (laughs) But for the unwise, ask God for wisdom. Ask Him for wisdom. You're lacking in wisdom? Go to God. Ask Him for it. He's the source. And then determine which character problems that you need to address. Do you need to mend a particular relationship in your life? We probably all do. Then you need to do it. Do you need to forsake a selfish pursuit? Stop it. You need to start uh, some neglected spiritual exercise in your life, like prayer, Bible reading, worship of God. Get started now. See, friends, one of the things I love about God is it's while you're still breathing, it's never too late. Never too late. You're never without hope. Never. You can start doing it now, right now. So don't let the effects of your past affect you now, right? I'm sure we've all made foolish decisions and done foolish things and said foolish things in the past. Friends, there's hope with God. So don't let the effects of your, of your foolishness and your folly just go spiraling out of control and downward. What, what, what we need to do, friends, is allow God to begin repainting this portrait. If, if your life has looked too much like the portrait of self or the unwise, God can paint a new portrait. He can repaint you in His own image. Are you being conformed into the image of Christ? Well, friends, if you're a believer, if you're, if you're on this path of Christian maturity, there's good news from Philippians. Because I love this verse in Philippians 1, verse 6. He who began a good work in you will complete it. You're not glorified yet. But that day's coming for all true believers. May God enable us to believe that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would you repaint us in the image of true wisdom, in the image of your own Son, Jesus Christ? We pray, conform us into the image of Christ. What a glorious image that is. We know He's the the full embodiment of all these glorious characteristics and results and motivations that we've seen here. So may we continually look. Jesus Christ, the author and finisher of our faith. May we cast off the sins that that hold us back, drag us down, and just bring us to this ugly portrait of the unwise. May may we see just how ugly it is, and may we want to avoid that at all cost. So we we need your grace. This is not something that just comes naturally in and of ourselves. We need you We need your grace. We need your empowering, your ability for this to be accomplished in our life. And may we do this for your honor and glory. We know that this is what is also best for our own good. So thank you for showing the two contrasting portraits here for us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.